1: Say the word and you'll be free. Say the
0: word and
2: be like me. Say the word. And Earnestly be seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program. A word from the word with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each
1: day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Well, here we are, the dawn of a new year, a new journey in 2024. Well, friends, it saddens my heart and brings a painful throb to my soul to witness over the years the increased biblical illiteracy in the body of Christ and in just about any local congregation. Yet nothing thrills my heart more than to see sisters and brothers in Christ have a thirst for God's word and a desire to not just know it better, but know it correctly. In my semi-retirement years, God has opened doors for me to oversee several disciple-making communities of adults, young people, and teens who meet at local cafes, coffee shops, and restaurants. Here, we respect the Word of God and study it on a deeper level, reading and interpreting it properly, allowing it to transform the way we think and act in our daily lives. Over the last two years, I invested time in a lengthy series I called Oh, That Verse Means That? "'I brought to light 40 Bible texts "'that are misunderstood, misconstrued, "'misinterpreted, and misapplied. "'Yes, I was up to part 40.' Some listeners still beg me to bring that series back. Well, that series and any others are posted at either faithtalk1360.com or at Spotify. Here, search for A Word from the Word with Pastor Tom and Apple Podcasts. Well, friends, today we'll mark the first part of a new series where I plan to lay to rest some of the unfortunate criticisms that have been leveled against the Bible, either out of ignorance, misinformation information or sheer animosity it's called 2024 the bible what is it good for and today's part one is the bible the ultimate influencer for good did you know socrates taught for 40 years so did aristotle Plato taught for 50, but Jesus only taught for three years. Yet Jesus' influence over those three years transcends the impact left by the combined 130 years from those three men who were among the greatest philosophers of all antiquity. Jesus painted no pictures, yet some of the finest paintings of Raphael, Michelangelo, and Leonardo da Vinci were inspired by him. Jesus wrote no poetry, but Dante, Milton, and scores of world's greatest poets were inspired by Jesus— Jesus composed no music, still Haydn, Handel, Beethoven, Bach, and Mendelssohn reached their highest perfection of melody in the hymns, symphonies, and oratorios composed in his praise. An anonymous writer said, Every sphere of human greatness has been enriched by this humble carpenter of Nazareth. Powerful, right? So let's be careful, friends. We don't divorce Jesus from his own cultural, social, and religious setting, an historical setting from which arose the most unique and remarkable anthology of writings in all human history. Here's an amazing statement in Galatians 4, 3, and 4. While we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world, or basic principles of this world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, referring to the Mosaic law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Again, we read in Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Friends, from their context, these two scriptures capture a mindset, a thought pattern, rooted in human-based philosophy and principles, and human-based religious practices that stand in opposition to the divinely revealed Word of God. There's even a hint these human-based philosophical and religious systems are satanically and demonically inspired, especially those set against the true knowledge of God. 2 Corinthians 10, Four and 5 say, the weapons we use in our fight are not made by humans, rather they're powerful weapons from God. With them we destroy people's defenses, that is, their arguments and all their intellectual arrogance that opposes the knowledge of God. So friends, our Judeo-Christian Bible paints a picture of a battle raging more ferociously than ever before. A battle for truth. A battle that it's truth against error... ...and this battleground... ...is our minds... ...a battle with a long history... ...yet distilled in John 18... ...28-38... ...but let's first remember... ...the domino effect has already begun... ...the events that signal Jesus' death... ...are happening in rapid succession... ...Judas has betrayed Jesus... ...to the Jewish and Roman authorities... ...Peter has denied he ever knew Jesus... Jesus is now standing before Pontius Pilate. Here's where we pick up the story in John 18. Jesus was brought into the praetorium, in other words, the governor's official residence, and they themselves, the Jewish leaders, did not enter the praetorium, so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore Pilate came out to them and said, "'What accusation are you bringing against this man?' They answered, If this man were not a criminal, we'd not have handed him over to you. Pilate replied, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jewish leaders said, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. This happened so that the word of Jesus, which he said, indicating what kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Therefore Pilate entered the praetorium again and summoned Jesus and said to him, "'You are the king of the Jews?' "'Jesus answered, "'Are you saying this on your own, "'or did others tell you about me?' "'Pilate answered, "'I am not a Jew, am I? "'Your own nation and the chief priests "'handed you over to me. "'What have you done?' "'Jesus answered, "'My kingdom is not of this world. "'If it were of this world, "'my servants would be fighting "'so that I would not be handed over "'to the Jewish leaders. "'But as it is, "'my kingdom is not of this realm.' Pilate said, "'So you are a king?' Jesus answered, "'You say correctly I am a king. For this purpose I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice.' Pilate said to him, "'What is truth?' Notice in verse 37, Jesus calmly declares that there's an objective, absolute truth, and his mission is to bear witness or testify to this truth. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say that everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. We must read between the lines a little here, friends. Connect the dots, because in these two statements, Jesus actually claims to be the truth. We could even add a tagline onto Jesus' statement. Everyone who is on the side of truth hears my voice because I am the truth. Truth is an important part of John's presentation of Jesus. The community of believers John oversaw were those who had been expelled by the non-believing Jewish community and who confessed Jesus as their Messiah. They were fast coming to grips with defining what it meant to confess Jesus as their promised Messiah and Savior. So John, in his gospel, paints portraits of individuals and groups responding to Jesus so he could lead his readers to respond to Jesus' claims with belief and trust. Friends, here John is discipling those to whom he's writing, believing communities that had elements of truth and understood these particular aspects of his person and mission, Jesus the Miracle Worker. Jesus the Wisdom Teacher, Jesus the Crucified Messiah, Jesus the Divine Revealer, and the future role of the Holy Spirit. So, John paints a fuller picture of Jesus, who is truth. Only John uses truth 25 times in his Gospel. It's through John we learn, God the Father is truth. John one fourteen, truth is realized in Jesus. One seventeen, worship must be in truth. 4.24, we can know the truth and it sets us free. 8.32, Jesus claimed to speak the truth. 8.45, Jesus declared he was truth incarnate. 14.6, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. 15.26, and... God's Word is Truth, 1717. And guess what, friends? All this infuses meaning into Jesus and Pilate's conversation in John 18. You thought I forgot, huh? Well, there may be two possible meanings behind Pilate's question, what is truth? The first, more obvious meaning is the idea that it's not easy to find truth. So, what is truth? The second possibility could be Pilate is jesting with Jesus, using his question to ban Back and forth. If so, we might conclude Pilate was saying, What does truth matter? And since these two interpretations don't contradict each other, my take is that both questions typify our 21st century mindset. In other words, What is truth? and What does truth matter? Friends, back in 2009, Paul Copan, author, theologian, philosopher, and apologist, wrote a book called True for You, But Not for Me, Overcoming Objections to Christian Faith. A book certainly apropos for a generation that's grown up believing truth is relative. In other words, truths don't have to exert demands on everyone. Each person can find the truth that works for them. Well, friends, I'll propose a way of looking at truth. And using my chart that originated in a 1994 book, Right from Wrong, by Josh McDowell and Bob Hostetler. Our hypothesis begins with the question, what is truth? The same question that Pilate asked Jesus. Imagine with me for a moment two columns. In the left column, the heading is truth is relative. And in the right column, the heading is truth is absolute. In other words, what if truth was one or the other? Under the heading Truth is Relative, on the left side, let's put the statement True for you but not for me, which was the title of Paul Copan's book. Over time, this idea was known as Moral Relativism and Situation Ethics. Next, under Truth is Relative, put No Objective Source. In other words, there's no objective source to test all other sources therefore, if truth is relative, then truth must also be subjective. So now, friends, if truth is relative, and there's no objective source to test all other sources, then it follows that all opinions are equally valid. And sorry, folks, but the Bible beat us to it. In Judges 17:6 and 21:25, we find this curious but timeless statement. It's actually a conclusion. Everyone One did what was right in his own eyes. Scholars generally propose Judges was written in the 11th century BC. Now, friends, if all opinions are equally valid, then we must accept religious pluralism under the umbrella of inclusivism or tolerance. And this naturally paves the way to there being many ways to God, and also many gods and many religions. Well, the natural byproduct of inclusivism and tolerance, both in life and in religion is the fact that there's no single moral foundation, which just brings us back to what we said when I introduced this chart on what is truth. In prior generations, it was known as moral relativism or situation ethics. And this forces us to logically conclude in this left column This scenario, truth is defined by the individual. Truth is subjective and situational. Well, friends, let's pause here a moment. You're listening to A Word from the Word with me, your host, Pastor Tom. I value you as listeners and A Word from the Word is listener-funded. Your financial partnership is vital to keep this program on the air, which also disciples Christians without a church home. And you who may have been hurt by the institutional church, Church. Please join forces with me and A Word from the Word by emailing me for support details at A Word from the Word at minister dot com. Friends, we're living in challenging financial times, and ministries are not immune. A Word from the Word is still seeking to become fully funded, and monthly supporters are greatly needed. We'll repeat this info at the end of today's program. Now, friends, in the right column, as I said earlier, what if truth is absolute? Well, if truth is absolute, there's two possibilities truth is not discoverable or truth is discoverable. And if truth is not discoverable, the Bible has us beat again. In 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-two, Paul says if there's no resurrection, we might as well eat and drink for tomorrow we die, which is partly a quote from Isaiah 23, 13 and partly from Proverbs eight fifteen, which says, so I commanded pleasure for there is nothing good for a person under the sun except to eat drink and be joyful well friends if truth is not discoverable and we should just eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we die there's two extreme responses antinomianism which simply means indulge in everything or asceticism which basically means temperance you know trying to rein in and suppress our desires But if truth is discoverable, then there must be an objective source for everyone to discover. Well, we contend that the objective source of truth is the Bible. And to the chagrin of many, unfortunately, the Bible being the revelation of truth leads many to accuse us of religious exclusivity being our source of moral absolutes. Now, what gets people's hackles up, friends, is religious exclusivity breeds intolerance, which sounds prideful and boastful to say there's only one way to God or only one true God. But they don't understand that we're not intolerant of people, but of belief systems and why we dialogue about systems of belief and evaluate these systems found in the world. Now, in the right column, what if truth is absolute? Our conclusion becomes truth is defined by God for everyone. It is objective and absolute. Certain things are right for all people, all times and all places. So friends, unfortunately, people and even Christians are guilty at times of having historical amnesia. The German philosopher Hegel once said, the only thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. So I'd like to close out our time today by strolling down history lane and rediscover how the Bible has actually been the ultimate influence Influencer for good. Let's hear some well known people. John Ruskin, acknowledged master of English prose, who lived from 1564 to 1616, said, Whatever I have done in my life has simply been due to the fact that when I was a child, my mother daily read with me a part of the Bible, and daily made me learn a part of it by heart. Daniel Webster, American lawyer and statesman, represented New Hampshire and Massachusetts in the U.S. Congress, and served as U.S. Secretary of State under Presidents Harrison, Tyler, and Fillmore, said, If there be anything in my style or thought to be commended... Credit is due to my kind parents in instilling in my mind an early love of the scriptures. If we abide by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering and to prosper. But if we and our posterity neglect its instructions and authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury our glory in profound obscurity." Whoa. Matthew Arnold, English poet, essayist, and critic, lived 1822 to 1888. A man far from orthodox beliefs with little faith in the supernatural said... Imagine a man with a sense for sculpture, not cultivating it by the help of the remains of Greek art. A man with a sense for poetry, not cultivating it by the help of Homer and Shakespeare. A man with a sense for conduct, not cultivating it by the help of the Bible. Woodrow Wilson, once head of Princeton University and 28th president of the U.S., said, The Bible is the word of life. I beg you, read it and find out for yourself. Read not little snatches here and there, but long passages that will readily be the road to the heart of it. You'll find it full of things you've wondered about and been troubled about all your life. When you have read the Bible, you'll know it's the word of God, because you will have found it the key to your own heart. Your own happiness and your own duty. Dr. William Lyons Phelps, professor of Yale University for 40 years in his 1923 book, Human Nature in the Bible, said, everyone who has a thorough knowledge of the Bible may truly be called educated. Western civilization is founded upon the Bible. Our ideas, wisdom, philosophy, literature, art, Ideals all come from the Bible, then from all other books put together. It's a revelation of divinity and humanity. It contains the loftiest religious aspirations, along with a candid representation of all that is earthly, sensual, and devilish. I thoroughly believe in a university education for both men and women, but I believe a knowledge of the Bible without a college course is more valuable than a college course without the Bible. For in the Bible we have profound thought beautifully expressed. We have the nature of boys and girls, of men and women, more accurately charted than in the words of any modern novelist or playwright. You can learn more about human nature by reading the Bible than by living in New York. For Friends, the Bible has played a major role in determining the social values of the Western world. It has influenced many societies to adopt basic, important community virtues and to oppose many social vices. Here are some specific ones: the family. Modern society has largely ignored biblical teachings about the family and consequently has seen the family suffer. Jesus upheld the dignity and equality of women in his teachings and dealings with women. Jesus held children in the highest esteem. Recall other cultures with bigamy, wives as property, discarding daughters at birth because of wanting a son. Employer-employee relations. In history, the pendulum has swung back and forth between owners and workers. They've been masters and slaves, merchants and buyers, landowners and serfs, employers and employees. A long history of persecution and victimization. Yet, the Bible stops the swinging pendulum with its golden rule, discrimination. Scripture lays discrimination to rest. America's founding fathers believed all people were created equal in God's eyes. Recall the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, James 2, and partiality. The Bible establishes the equality of all. It's a sin to treat anyone otherwise crime, and punishment. What's lawful and unlawful in America is highly influenced by the Bible. Killing, stealing, lying, and cheating are all against the law, influenced by the Ten Commandments. True, the Bible has been wrongly stereotyped by thinking it promotes intolerance, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, but many of our social ills would be solved if we followed the Bible properly interpreted. Friends, I could go on. Humanitarianism, government, education, art, music, literature, and more. You see, friends, if our greatest need was information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need was technology, God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need was money, God would have sent an economist or banker. If our greatest need was entertainment, God would have sent a comedian or artist. If our greatest need was political stability, God would have sent a politician. If our greatest need was health, God would have sent a doctor. If the world needed an army, God would have sent a general. But our greatest need was forgiveness of sin, our alienation from God, our rebellion, death. So God sent a Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of our program. But before we close, I'd like to reshare a personal thought from my last New Year challenge on 1 Corinthians 5.17. We don't do verse 17 justice unless we read 18 through 6, too, as the text tells us our mission, that we despair over life and its meaningless can be drawn to God, the God to whom we must all be reconciled, the God who gives meaning to life right here, right now. The verses we overlook are... All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the word to himself, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So we're ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. So in him we might become the righteousness of God. For God says, At the acceptable time I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Holidays may accentuate life's meaninglessness, especially with the complex challenges the world throws at us. So put your spiritual antenna up and tune in to people around you who need a Savior. I love coming alongside you without a church home or you who've been wounded by the institutional church. Podcasts are at faithtalk1360.com and Spotify. Here, search for a word from the word with Pastor Tom. And thanks to my friends and partners at christianbody.net We broadcast in 70-plus countries. You may also inquire about how to financially keep us on the air. Please consider a one-time contribution and or become a monthly partner this month. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if
2: you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at... A word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.